We are nearing the end of Lent. This is our last week in Lent. And Palm Sunday is this signal to us of our impending Easter celebration. And we're also coming to the end of our showing up sermon series in which we have explored various perspectives on how we show up in the world as followers and acolytes of the one we call Jesus or the Christ. And so I just want to call your attention back to the resource that I created. It's called the showing up worksheet. It's there in the comments and it's in the guide linked in a couple of places in the guide. And I invite you, if you can, to print it out or to copy and paste it into a new document so that we can work with it a little bit later. So um, <clears throat> as I observe Christ in the scriptures, it seems to me now, okay, I can't jump into the mind of Christ and read his thought processes yet, but it seems to me, and you guys might agree that he has a very intentional way of showing up in the world. Like he's going to be his very own, very focused and intentional and wise and kind, and usually pretty calm self in his own way, no matter what's going on around him. And of course, there are notable exceptions where Jesus is not calm. But even those, if you go back and read them, they feel like he's making a conscious decision to behave in a certain way. And so he's not super interested in what people think of him or in doing what's expected of him or in allowing other people to project roles onto him. He is just consistently, ruthlessly authentic. And this is a thing that I find very refreshing about this guy. And for me, it's a big part of why I think he's worth following. Like when he was on the earth, he was an original and he shows up over and over again as his own self in every interaction that I observe him in. He owns his uniqueness. He owns his voice and his authenticity. And I think that's a cool and imitable trait. So let's hear today's case study, okay? Case in point of how Jesus shows up. This is the gospel reading from the book of Mark um, in chapter 11. It is today's lectionary text for the Liturgy of the Palm. But before I read it, just let me mention a couple of historical items of interest. This story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem before the Passover feast is the first time that Jesus shows up um, like out of the closet to appropriate a term as Messiah. He's not necessarily saying the word himself, but that word is hanging out in the air in this moment. It's whispered in the alleys and religious leaders are feeling threatened by it and questions and accusations and gossip are starting to buzz around. This word Messiah is like a pot on the verge of a boil. And at this point, Jesus isn't refuting it. In fact, um, so much of what Jesus does here in this story um, is symbolic of Messiah, like the place he comes from. He comes from Bethany, the gate he enters the city from, which scholars think was the mercy gate. And the donkey that Jesus rides is a symbol of peace. So everything he's doing here has all this meaning. And this term Messiah is really loaded. Messiah in Hebrew means the anointed one. And the expectation is that the Messiah will, will change the world according to the will of God. 
the people of this day and time, they have heaps of ideas and expectations and mental projections about what a Messiah is supposed to be, do, look like, behave. And some groups want him to be a king who takes over and establishes a new literal kingdom. Some groups want him to be a warrior who annihilates Israel's enemies, namely the Romans who are occupying and oppressing the territory at this time. A Messiah is expected to be successful, victorious, and wealthy, and therefore worthy of worship. But Jesus, though he is of the line of the ancestral King David of Israel, is not successful by those standards, nor is he engaging in any military activity, nor has he amassed any troops with which he might be victorious. And he is unfortunately a peasant who advocates a pretty austere lifestyle. And he's been roaming homeless around the countryside, touching and healing, you know, quote unquote, unclean people and conjuring dinner from meager resources and preaching semi-confusing sermons that inflame the ire of certain religious leaders and sects. He's not really doing Messiah stuff outside of the miracles. Okay, so let's hear now that I've given you all this intro. Um, let's hear what Jesus does. Instead of behave in a manner fitting to the, fi to the successful and the victorious and the wealthy. All right, Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. And as they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. And then he entered Jerusalem and went into the, the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. We hear the voice of God in the reading of this sacred text. Thanks be to God. Amen. Um, okay, so we got all these people in Jerusalem. We got thousands of people who were gathered for the Passover celebration, which incidentally, this year's Jewish celebration of Passover began yesterday. So felicitations to our Jewish siblings. Um, the festival of Passover was celebrating the Hebrews' exodus from Egypt 
centuries prior, and it is one of Judaism's high holidays. And so the word is getting out that Jesus is coming and the rumored Messiah is coming to town. And folks have got all these expectations, like I mentioned, about what he's going to do and how he's going to save them and how all their troubles are over and how the Romans will be beat back and Israel will once again be a military superpower. Yeah. And Jesus is like, yeah, you do you, and I'll do me. And he's going to do his thing. So I just want to interject here. Um, it's interesting to me as a person who pays attention to our ideas about worship, what it means to worship, and like, why do we do what we do in terms of worship? So it's interesting to me that regardless of the fact that Jesus never asks nor demands to be worshiped, people tend to do this anyway. They seem to sense that the nearness of God to Jesus, uh, and and since people are pretty much going to worship something, they decide to worship him with, with songs and hosannas. And there's nothing wrong with that. As Amanda pointed out earlier, which I was grateful for, you know, if we don't cry out, the rocks will. But in all of my readings of the Gospels, I don't get the sense that it's Jesus's intention to be worshiped. Instead, the message that I hear over and over from Jesus himself is him saying, hey, the kingdom of God is right here near to you. Hey, God's reality is right here waiting for you to start living inside of it. Hey, the community of heaven is welcoming you. Come step over into this other timeline and adopt this other way of being, this alternative. Maybe it's just me, y'all. But I don't hear Jesus saying, I'm the king of the world, worship me. No, I hear a standing invitation into a new way of life. You guys remember in Mark 10, when this rich guy approaches Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal, lo- eternal life? And Jesus is like, why are you calling me good? You know the commandments, have you followed them? And the guy's like, yes, to the letter, my whole life. And Jesus is like, okay, then why don't you get rid of all your possessions and everything that's holding you back and come live inside this paradigm of radical abundance and generosity with me. It's Mark 10. You can read it for yourself. And the guy's like, no, he goes, he goes away. Right? Like we want to worship, but we don't want to actually do the work or shift our thinking or change our ways. And you guys, Y'all, I I can't help but think about how we've gotten this wrong in Western Christianity. We want to put Jesus up on a pedestal and we want to sing songs about him, but we don't want to shift our thinking out of oppression, scarcity, dualism, judgment, war, violence, death, and into kingdom of God thinking and into abundance and mercy and love and oneness and gratitude and life. Right. So there's a hope here. There's an expectation that Jesus will ride into Jerusalem on a war horse with a sword and armor and finery and troops. Can you feel that undercurrent of hope that there will be a holy war 
and that somehow war will save them and not destroy them this time. But have you ever observed a war, either historically or in real time, that didn't destroy non-combatants, lands, homes, and children? Jesus is not playing the war game here. With Jesus, there is no collateral damage. Instead of coming in the posture of a warrior, he's riding into the capital city in the posture of a peasant on a baby donkey and his, his finery are palm branches and his red carpet are the people's clothes and his attendants are more peasants. His hands are empty of weapons. And we know that he's thought about this beforehand. He planned it this way. He's connected the dots of the ancient scriptures and he's planned how he's gonna show up. Specifically, let me call your attention to Zechariah 9, which says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus has taken this in and intentionally planned how he's gonna show up as a peacemaker and non-combatant and not as a warlord. Now, we know the rest of the story. We know that Jesus is ultimately successful and victorious and wealthy, but his success comes unexpectedly and his victory is unorthodox and his wealth is the unseen kind. His strategy on the surface looks like defeat. It looks like death, but it contains surprises that we couldn't have imagined on our own. And that's what makes the story so good. Jesus's victory lies in what he builds and not in anything that he destroyed. In fact, he says point blank, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it. And the invitation for us is hidden in here because it always is with Jesus. There is always an invitation to go this way too. We are invited to subvert the ways of war by way of radical forgiveness. We are invited to cease struggling against things, people, events, ideas, circumstances, and instead go another way. Go the way of peace. Go the way of radical acceptance and forgiveness. Go the way of joy and kindness and authenticity. To go the way of building and creating a new reality rather than reinforcing the old oppressive one. The story is Jesus riding into what N.T. Wright calls a perfect storm of political and religious upheaval. And I've linked in the guide there to N.T. Wright's very interesting article about the historical con context of this moment that, that's happening and this, in this place in time. So go check that out if you're curious. But he calls it a perfect storm. And I would venture to say that we have been inside of a perfect storm. We've got 
political division and upheaval. We've got a major world health crisis. We've got an economic crisis, waves of immigrants seeking respite from crises that they've had to flee. We've got a crisis of gun violence that keeps happening and remains unaddressed. We have an ongoing environmental crisis also not receiving the attention that it requires. So we don't in our time and place, we don't have to work very hard to understand the kind of perfect storm that Jesus and his disciples are walking in on at this time. We got it. This story of how Jesus shows up in Jerusalem gives me the idea that I too get to decide how I show up in the world, how I show up to whatever circumstances life hands me and whatever mission I'm called to. I can show up battle ready, looking for a fight, looking for a struggle, looking to punish wrongdoers and bring destruction. I can show up depressed and pessimistic. I can show up determined to be unhappy about every turn of events. I can show up ready to judge what's good, what's bad, what needs me to come in and destroy it. I can show up ready to show whoever who's boss. Or, or, I can show up humbly with like a backpack full of forgiveness and acceptance that I'm ready to sprinkle all over everything. I can show up looking for ways to serve. I, I can show up with trust that God is always working in every situation and that what was meant for evil, God is turning to good. I can show up to listen and learn. I can show up to enjoy the ride, regardless of where it takes me, ready to pour love on the situation, even when it's a perfect storm. Jesus knew where he was going, and he knew it was going to be rough, and he knew that there were going to be experiences of betrayal and suffering and death and intensity and discomfort, and that duality was going to play out. And that's true for us too. We're bound to have intense and uncomfortable and painful experiences. We're probably going to have some trauma to work through, but we get to decide how we show up in this life. This is my choice and yours. I can show up. I can hold tight to what was, or I can let go and I can accept what is. I can hold on to my struggle and my wish that things were different and my pain and my trauma and my dis-ease, I can internalize all that and identify myself with it and make it part of my self-concept or I can flow with what is and I can imagine a better reality inside of that flow. I can let other people's projections of me tell me who I am or I can show up fully in my authentic, divine, fully resourced, fully healed and complete, fully self-actualized, fully integrated self. Look, those folks wanted Jesus to start a revolution and to save them from themselves. And the funny thing is that he did. It just didn't look like what they thought. So the question is, do we believe what Jesus said about the kingdom of heaven being so near we can touch it and smell it and feel it? Do we trust that his take on things is the right one? Do we have the courage to choose 
to live in that reality despite whatever storms we're getting a front row seat to? Do we have the courage to do what he did, which was saddle up, ride a baby donkey into a storm of war-hungry, bloodthirsty, dual-minded people, and ride that storm all the way to its unexpected and surprising and ultimately happy end? Y'all, this is the Jesus that we follow. The one whose sword looked like love. The one whose victory looked like certain death. The one whose finery looked like tree branches. I don't know about y'all, but I feel pretty happy about tree branches. Tree branches sound great to me. I'm pretty happy about a world in which I don't have to fake being something that I'm not. And I'm pretty happy also about free will here. You, you and I get to choose how we show up. The world is going to do what it's going to do. I don't have any control over it. People are going to have all kinds of expectations about how and who I should be. And I can't control that either. But I get to control how I show up. And sometimes I'll get off on the wrong foot. Sometimes I'll show up grumpy and sad. And that's okay. Because you know what? We're here to learn. This, this is earth school. There's always another chance for me to learn from my choices and choose heaven on earth next time. Jesus models what it means to show up intentionally, firmly grounded in heaven and on earth. So I'm a firm believer in intention setting, and I think that intentions work even better if we write them down. So I want to give us just a moment here, an opportunity to do some practical intention setting. So hopefully you either printed or copied um, the showing up worksheet and you have that in front of you where you could work on it. I'll pull it up too in just a second. Um, but here's the thing. We get to choose how we live and how we show up in the world and how we respond to situations and to a large extent, how we feel. And all these things take practice and mindfulness. And of course, mantras are also helpful with intention. For example, one of my big intentions for how I show up in the world here lately is unhurried and unworried. Meaning, I'm at ease. I'm full of trust. I'm expecting goodness and mercy to follow me all the days of my life. That's how I want to live and how I want to be. So what I'm inviting y'all to do now is to spend a few minutes engaging with this worksheet and with the questions on it and um, just thinking, allowing the spirit to guide you as you set some intentions for how you're going to show up in this next season of life in various aspects of your life. I'm going to play a little music, two to three minutes. Don't stress about it. If you want to come back and do it later, no big deal. That's okay too. 